Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, I'll be talking to Free TV's Bridget Fair about... Whether TV's content quotas need to change. So it's a bit like going and getting an ice core from 30 years ago and, you know, seeing what was appropriate for that time. The opportunity for Australia's production industry. We've seen some international productions want to move to Australia. And Google's response to the ACCC. I think it's actually quite a misguided strategy to try and frighten people. But first... The week's topics. A bloodbath on the ASX. Google takes the fight to the ACCC. NRMA's epic fire safety ad, hit or miss. And controversy over a new course for PR graduates. We'll start this week with results season because that is what we're into right now. Everyone is making their confessions to the ASX about what their numbers look like. So let's kick off with the communications holding groups. Uh, Britt has just got off the phone from WPP's boss, Jens Monzies. Let's hear a tiny bit from him. Well, actually, um, quite positive. So um, I'm very proud of the, the whole team. We, we showed a very strong um, uh, and agile a response to the new situation, I would say that situation, you know, continues. So um, I think there was a very strong response from the team. And, and actually, and that is maybe even more important long term, it, it is accelerating our, our strategy because our strategy was uh, obviously based on experience, technology, and also commerce, and, and these areas in the moment are are peaking. So I see a lot of a lot of brands and advertisers in in Australia and New Zealand in the moment rethinking their strategies and um, and uh, yeah, reaching also out for support and guidance uh, to navigate that new norm. Because you know, but my my view is we are not talking about a short. Um, short virus period i think the whole humanity globally has to has to live with that new norm and and the question is always what you do out of it and and what kind of response you're showing because you once you can control uh, the external impact of the virus you can't so we are focusing on on what we can control and and how we how we are uh, driving our business and and uh, how we partner uh, with our clients. I, th- I think that's the most important one. And, and actually, if we would sit now here, I think in, in Feb or Jan this year, and I would tell you, you know, we are able that 96% of our staff is working remotely, then you would laugh at me and say, you are crazy. And, and, and now it's reality. So I'm, I'm always very how how quick um, humans can react to new things. I think the big message from WPP today has been that 
its results have been better than expected, really. So in May, it flagged that it could be anywhere from a break-even EBIT to a $10 million loss. So really, in that context, today was good news, I would say, for yens. So despite the, the very high drop in headline profit before tax, that fell 68.5%. I think yens is really focused on June and July in particular. So both of those months were profitable despite COVID. And while net sales were down for the year by 14.3%, Chris Rowlandson, their chief financial officer, also said that this was higher and better than anticipated. So look, is it a great result in any other year but 2020? Probably not. But in the context of COVID and what we're dealing with, I think that WPP did did better than it even thought it would. Well, it's worth making the point for people who don't know, WPP, the largest um, holding group, well, in the world, but also with their local listing, the largest one on the ASX. Um, maybe just talk us through some of the agencies that are there within the group, because it's pretty much, uh, well, most of the famous ones. Yeah, sure. So WPP agencies include Mediacom, White Grey, Mindshare, Wavemaker, Wonderman Thompson, and when you actually looked at the segment split across the different you know, parts of WPP, that was quite interesting. So among those media and creative agencies, net sales fell 12% and they chalked that up to clients deferring or cancelling spend altogether uh, in the wake of COVID-19. The PR division was worse, so it dropped 20.8%. But interestingly, there wasn't so much of an emphasis on COVID with those. They were still kind of attributing client losses from last year. And then, of course, there's, you know, training events and experiential companies which haven't been able to do their normal work throughout the pandemic. They had a 14.6% slide and then large format productions dropped almost 50%. And um, as well as WPP, you also covered RXP this week as well. I did. So that's the parent company of creative agency, The Works. It posted revenue that was down 10% to $127 million. And kind of similarly to WPP, really, the message was definitely one of positivity or we're doing better than a lot of other companies are. So EBITDA was down 8% to 15.4 million, but the second half was actually up on the first. So this was their full year results, whereas WPP posted their half year results. So yeah, there was quite a bit to get through for RXP's presentation. They kind of abandoned their Hong Kong operations at the end of June. They couldn't get the sale um, to go through once COVID-19 started. So that kind of impacted their presentation a little bit and then also you know they they did make a distinction between Sydney and Canberra so the New South Wales markets that they're in and then Melbourne so Melbourne fared much worse throughout the pandemic than Sydney and and Canberra did. And um, Hannah there are also various updates to the ASX on the media owner side of things as well now you cover the big broadcasters uh, uh, so that includes Southern Cross Stereo, who are both in radio and TV and HT&E who are in radio. So let's maybe start with Southern Cross Stereo. Sure. So Southern Cross Stereo, the parent company of the Hit Network and Triple M, um, as well as their TV interests as well, which are regional focused. Um, Their revenues fell 18%. This was their full financial year reporting. 
um, resulting in $540 million in revenue across the business compared to 661 last year. Um, I think what's particularly interesting, though, and the kind of when I spoke to CEO Grant Blackley, he really pointed to the fact they've done a lot of work to get their debt down. They um, were kind of lumbered with this massive amount of debt, which they have now managed to put a pretty big dent into. Uh, last year, they had $292 million worth of debt. That's down to $131 million this year. Most of that is because they went through an equity funding round a couple of months ago, which they uh, haven't actually used that money from. So I think they got somewhere around $161 million in equity and they haven't, um, $160 million, which they haven't actually touched. So that's obviously gone directly against that debt. They haven't used it to pay the debt down. So it's just what the debt looks like now. It looks a little bit nicer. Um, But they've also gone through a number of cost savings. The end of last year, they cut massively across their business. I think it was like 70 roles redundant. Um, And then this year, they've done, you know, the usual stand downs, hour reduction, all that. In terms of what they actually wanted to point us towards, their podcast arm, Podcast One Australia, that's now cash flow positive. It's where its revenue increased by 96% across the year. Um, But yeah, for their broadcast business, I think they did a little better than some others would have done just because they've got that metro regional split, which some other companies maybe have a little bit less of. Um, But yeah. Just before you move on to HTNA, um, there was a bit of a weird story which was then taken down and followed by an apology on one of the other trade press titles, B&T, um, which suggested that Southern Cross Austereo was was teetering on the verge of administration, which was very, very quickly taken down as incorrect. Did you detect in this update any reason for forming that view? I actually didn't. Like, I think Brittany kind of touched on this before as well. You know, we're all expecting these updates to be bad. You know, we're expecting massive losses across the board. We've seen all these companies hop on the ASX before this week and say, hey, guys, things aren't going to be great. Um, But honestly, considering they've got quite a large amount of equity that they can now use as liquidity, they've also done a lot of cost cutting across their business. I don't think SCA is looking that bad, especially considering how they came into this year. If you'd asked me at the beginning of this year how they were going to survive COVID-19, I may not have had an answer for you. So yeah, I can't shine any light on that one, unfortunately, Tim. But from what I can see, they're not doing too badly. And how about HTNA? Yeah, things were a little bit worse off at HTE. Um, that's the parent company of Australian Radio Network. It's almost the only business they've actually got underneath them now after they went on a bit of a fire sale of assets last year. Um, they saw an 82% fall in their profit, uh, wrote down a $60 million loss across their business. But again, they're kind of pointing to green shoots on the horizon. They said, um, I spoke to CEO Kieran Davis, and he said the fourth quarter is looking okay at this point. Um, they're already seeing some improvement in July compared to June. So I think they're hoping this is kind of going to be the worst of it for them. Um, they've also got a lot of undrawn debt to rely on. And, you know, across their business, they've been doing the same thing SCA has been doing. They've been moving into podcasting. They've been trying to draw people away from just listening to radio in car and that sort of thing. So I think if you were to ask them, they would say that they were pretty prepared for a pandemic or as prepared as you could be. Um, in terms of their other businesses, they've got Hong Kong Outdoor, which obviously did very, very badly, um, mainly because Outdoor has done very, very badly. And they've also got tech business Soprano, 
which they've got a 25% interest in. And that actually had its best results ever. So that did all right. They also did a little bit of investing in Omedia when Omedia went on its own equity raising round a couple of months ago. And they said that's been great for their business too. So I think they're doing the same spin that SCA is doing. Yes, this is obviously a very tough market, but they've taken some very tough cuts across the board to come out the other side of it. And they're hoping towards the end of this year, they'll have a bit more of a good news story. Well, before we move away from results season, I'll come back to you, Britt, because Hannah sort of pointed there to a bit of optimism from Southern Cross Stereo and HT&E. With the holding companies, RXP and WPP, Did when they were talking looking forward, um, was there much positivity there on the holding company side? I think there always is. It wouldn't be much of an investor presentation if they said that, you know, actually the future looks the same, if not worse. I guess I'll I'll approach WPP and RXP differently, but they did say similar things. WPP very much is relying on the second half of the year. They always have a better result in the second half of the year, but of course, a lot of that is hinged on, you know, the the Christmas ramp up, the pre-Christmas ramp up and, you know, retail sales. So it will be interesting to see how that goes this year, but they're saying that you know, their clients are still looking to spend and and there does seem to be some, you know, more client confidence than there has been. And then in terms of RXP, they say, you know, they've got a great client pipeline. They've got a solid, you know, pipeline of leads and, you know, it's starting to improve from where it was earlier in the year. I think one particularly interesting thing that I forgot to mention about both um, SCA and HDE. If you look at their share results after those announcements went out, it's quite a different story. So SCA has dropped 3% across the day, whereas HD&E is up 15%, which considering it hasn't been a particularly great day on the ASX so far, obviously there was something in that presentation that the investors were interested in. Next, are PR grads ready for agency life? So lots going on in the public relations world this week. That includes a new course that an agency has put together for new PR graduates. Um, Zoe, you wrote the story, but it didn't seem to go down very well in every quarter. So communications agency Romano Beck has launched this course after finding that University graduates that have hired interns and junior employees sort of lacked practical industry knowledge. Uh, when when it, the news came in to me, I did go back to them and ask, where exactly are university graduates falling short? And founder Gareth Beck came back to me and said that university graduates can sometimes have delusions of grandeur and come into the workforce wanting to run before they can walk and didn't really understand the menial tasks that go into public relations, particularly when you're at the bottom of the food chain. And no, people in our comment thread did not react well to the news. A lot of people said that it is exclusionary and classist because the course actually costs $1,495. Other people said that it was a bit of a cash grab on behalf of the agency trying to take advantage of young graduates and young people who are probably struggling to find work at the moment in the pandemic. 
But a comment that we got that stood out to me was from um, Katarina Wolf, who is the chairperson of PREAS, the industry body's National Education Committee, who argued against it and said that university graduates are prepared for the PR industry because university degrees are designed to develop critical thinking and sort of prepare you for the long term rather than uh, teach you just practical skill sets. University degrees are a bit more theoretical. And then also pointed out that some university degrees are also accredited by the Public Relations Institute of Australia. However, I have to disagree with her on this and I will have to speak from personal experience because I actually studied a public relations degree. And did you come out of that degree with ideas above your station that needed beating out of you in your first job? Um, I hope not, but you guys can tell me that. Um, but I can say that when I left university and I was looking for work across a number of fields in the industry, I certainly did not feel prepared for a role in public relations. I I won't name the university I went to, but I can tell you that I wrote one press release when I was at university and the actual fear that I had of entering a public relations role and being asked to write a press release and me saying, mm, I don't really know how to do that was quite intense. And so I can say that the university I went to does not prepare its PR graduates for the industry. However, I will have to note that the university I went to is not one of the programs that is accredited by prayer. Well, look, um, um, it's probably worth making the point that it is a matter of public record on your LinkedIn profile yeah. that it was UNSW. <laughs> um, and yeah, I guess I just didn't want to name them. <laughs> yeah, well, you did and I did. Um, and the question I find myself asking is, how can they purport to teach you about PR and not train you to write a press release? How is that making you ready for the jobs world? That, well, that's my point. It wasn't. my The degree I did was very focused on theory. So 50% of it was based on theory, media theory, PR theory, and then 50% of it was more practical subjects that also just sort of rammed all the skills together in a 13-week program. So I think I would probably have been the target market for this course from Romano Beck. But part of me still disagrees with it because I I do feel like they are taking advantage of people and I think it's more on the industry and on agencies to reach out to universities and bridge that gap. If there's an issue, should we not be bridging the gap in the industry together than setting up something that you can profit from? I would love to see what PR candidates Romano Beck is getting through the door that have immediate delusions of grandeur because, I mean, going into a PR agency as a grad, you know you're going to essentially be a shit kicker. You're, as Zoe said, bottom of the food chain. You know, maybe they're just hiring the wrong people. Like, it just feels bizarre to say something as, quite frankly, obvious as uni grads are not ready or not experienced in the industry. Of course they aren't. They're uni grads, which is why graduate programs exist and train them up to be. And those graduate programs, you know, you're paying for people to, you know, 
learn your company's way of working, learn processes just as any other employee would have to do if they came to work for you. But also, you know, as Zoe mentioned, bridging the gap between what you've learned at uni and how things, you know, apply in a classroom and how they apply and how they apply with a client. So I think particularly the price tag just feels, I don't know, a bit off, you know, you think about how much debt you get into when you finish a uni degree and you've got all this hex that's hanging over your head. And then to think, okay, I'm now up for another $1,500 to essentially pay to get a job at this PR agency. And to launch it in the middle of a pandemic, it just, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a great PR move from them, to be honest. And I think regardless of what the industry is, I mean, you finish law school you don't have experience with clients and in a law firm necessarily. You've got to get that. You finish an accountant's degree. You haven't been an accountant for five years. Like, yes, that is, you know, an issue, but it's literally it's literally what university graduates are. I, I just don't quite seem to understand the disconnect there. Hannah. Yeah, I think the media industry is quite often targeted when it comes to grads who graduate without knowing what they what kind of they need to bring to the table I suppose but that's why traditionally if you look at journalism there were cadet programs which you know you would come in as a grad having no knowledge and they would train you up on a very very small salary I think what stuck out here was that this was just such a missed opportunity for me I mean I completely see where they're coming from I also did some PR components as part of my degree at UWS and they were all theoretical. None of them were practical, but I would say the same about my own journalism degree. I think what could have been on the table here would have been a really great opportunity for them to say, okay, we're more than open to taking grads. We're going to put them through a training program. We're going to create the kind of PR people we want to see in the world. And they could have positioned themselves as this agency who's, you know, training up the future of the PR industry. And I think that would have been a really great opportunity. I think the reason it's been responded to so badly is just the price tag. I don't know that many of the comments said, I think you're wrong about grads. I think most of the comments said, why would you profit off people like this? Um, so yeah, to me, this is just a missed opportunity, I think, and not great PR for their own business. Well, there is a lot going on with, um, education in public relations at the moment. Um, Zoe, you reported a few days ago on the Australian communications advocacy group. What's that? So the Australian communications advocacy group is a lobbying body that was formed by the public relations Institute of Australia the International Association of Public Participation and the International Association of Business Communicators in response to the proposed changes to university fees by Education Minister Dan Tian. Priya has, in particular has been quite outspoken about the effect that these changes will have on people entering into public relations degrees. Priya's national president, Lee McCluskey, came out straight away when the changes were announced and said that they were inequitable, ham-fisted, short-sighted, and also took a little bit of a jab at the government saying it's the skills of PR professionals that have helped them communicate so well with the Australian public through the pandemic. 
Now, while we're talking public relations, the Communications Council rebranded this week. And in the process, they've, they've made clear they're really no longer even glancing towards the PR world. Um, Britt, the Communications Council no longer. No. So they're now the Advertising Council Australia, which I can tell you both saying out loud and typing felt a bit strange because you really want to put that of in between um, council and Australia. So it's not of Australia, it's just Australia. The impetus, I suppose, is really that, you know, they don't want to see advertising as a dirty word anymore. They really want to focus on on that and that alone. I think previously the idea was that, you know, media agencies would also come under the communications umbrella, but that wasn't super successful. So they've decided, look, let's stick to advertising. Let's, you know, reimagine it. They've stripped back a lot of, you know, internal clutter, I suppose, in what was the comms council. So, you know, Mark Green, who's the chair, but also the CEO of the Monkees, he said that, you know, they were doing too much and they were trying to spread themselves too thin. And actually by focusing on less things, but doing them better, that will serve members better. Notably, WPP is also on board with the rebrand. So they are now a member and Jens Monsis, the CEO, is on the board of the new council. So they were previously missing and WPP wouldn't comment, but Mark Green and, you know, the council generally said that it it makes sense. They're a huge piece of the pie, the biggest piece of the pie regionally and internationally, as you said before, Tim. And so having them on board helps the council. But Mark Green also said that I think Jens maybe came in and realised that if they weren't part of this, they'd be a little bit on the outside. So there was a comment about a frenemy vibe, quote unquote, at the boardroom table. But yes, WPP also part of the new group. Look, and I suppose it's worth acknowledging the sort of the history of WPP sort of emerged out of STW, where the influence of John Singleton and Mike Conahan was still there, and they weren't into joining clubs. So I think while they were while they were at the helm, it was never going to be a a member of the organisation. Um, and Zoe, one of the things which kind of um interested me about the rebrand and sort of made us go and ask the question was um they they had. As, as as Brit acknowledged, they'd, they'd had ambitions to be all sorts of communications. They they never succeeded in persuading the Media Federation, which is the media agency body, of coming on board. But they did start the PR council, and it was you know it had some momentum for a few years, but um, but clearly no more. And the funny thing was when he went and asked the question, they actually gave up some months ago, and they just didn't tell anyone. Yes, so the PR Council was launched in 2012 when the Comms Council started attracting a lot more PR members. When I asked about it, I was told that uh, after Annalise Brown, who was the chair of the PR Council and appointed in 2017, finished up the role in 2018, the group just sort of wound down and it just sort of tapered out and that was the end of it. Next, a big new brand ad from NRMA. But will it sell any insurance? In case you missed it, Mumbrella 360 is returning, this time virtually, in November. Under its new title, Mumbrella 360 Reconnected, 
the conference is ready to attack the biggest talking points in an industry going through some of the most substantial changes in its history. There's plenty of serious firepower on the lineup already with industry leaders such as Microsoft's Seattle-based head of evangelism, Christy Olson, McDonald's director of marketing, Joe Feeney, Junkie Media's co-founder and editor-at-large, Tim Duggan, McCann's local owner and creative chairman, Ben Lilly, and many more to be confirmed soon. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 for more information. So, big week in the insurance sector this week, Zoe. Yeah, kicking off with NRMA, they launched a campaign earlier this week asking Australians to take the first Saturday of every month to do a job around the house that will help make it safer for the upcoming bushfire season. Uh, It's kicked off with an ad uh, that takes the viewer inside a, a rural fire brigade truck on the way to meeting a bushfire and um, it's cut in with different dates of bushfire disasters that have happened in Australia in the last uh, four decades. The campaign will build as time goes on. So in the lead up to each first Saturday, uh, a different task will be promoted through the campaign assets and it will change as we also become aware of different crises that are upcoming like storm season in November. Well, we'll talk about that a bit more in a moment, but then there's also one other uh, big insurance campaign starting this week as well. Yeah, this week, Amy also kicked off a new campaign with a new tagline, Amy Does, which is highlighting the things that Amy does for its customers as opposed to what other insurers don't do. And that campaign kicked off with a film that follows you know, your average Aussie bloke considering how his life in various difficult situations would be different if he was with Amy as opposed to his insurer. Well, let's start then with NRMA. And this is tricky. When I saw the press release on this one come in, I really had quite high expectations. Um, And I really wanted to like it. I... You know, I find the the agency behind it, CHE Proximity, one of the most interesting agencies in Australia, have been for a year or two now. Just their model really deserves attention. You've then got Brent Smart, one of the kind of most visible uh, CMOs over IAG in a, you know, in a kind of industry where too many CMOs kind of, you know, kind of, stay in hiding you've got this amazing director of the ad in um justin kurtzel who directed snowtown i guess was one of his uh, big ones the true history of the kelly gang so everything done done right um and it's a very powerful piece of filmmaking you know this sort of particularly the 90 second version which is the version that gets press released and maybe goes on air once, uh, you know, this sort of claustrophobic, scary moments in the, in the fire engine. Um, but I thought about it a lot and I think it's a miss for me. 
strategically, I um, I, I just don't think it's there. This is such a stretch. This i this idea that just at the very end of the you know the message, it's try and do something you know one Saturday a, a month to make your house you know fire ready. You've as the audience, you've got to go a long way to get that message. Um, and we've had the benefit of reading the press release and have it explained. Um, I, yeah, I, I just find myself wondering what, what am I missing? What am I missing, Zoe? I think you are missing the strategy in one sense because the campaign is built on some really great insights in how. You know, Australians are picking up more DIY work. Australians are valuing their own safety more than anything at the moment. And then also reminding people of the bushfires of last summer, the destruction they caused, and also how some of it, not all of it, could have been prevented if people were more fire ready. And then the launch film, and I think part of what you're miss, like you're struggling with Tim, is that it is a launch film, and it's not these assets that we're seeing that will bring across like the tasks that you should be doing to make your home fire safe. It's sort of starting with that reminder of the bushfires last year, giving you that sense of anxiety that it could happen again, and that's where the disconnect is because we're sort of missing that more practical part of the campaign. It is a very different approach to Amy, which is about persuading people to buy the insurance that they offer. Do you not think that the latter may be more effective in doing the day job of selling insurance? Yes, because, you know, Amy's is really down to the fundamentals of advertising, which is how do we get customers to switch to our brand instead of staying with the one that they're with. And let's just hear a little bit of a clip of that. In life, there are those that say they'll do and those that actually do. When it comes to insurance, Keith, it's worth a closer look. Some don't offer unlimited not-at-fault car hire. But Amy does. Just give us the other driver's details. So I think Amy's really getting the message across. It's a lot stronger. The strategy's a lot stronger. I think it's doing the day job and it's also kind of investing in the brand as well with this admittedly not my favourite tagline ever, but Amy does. What's missing the mark for me for Amy is creatively I just don't think it's as sharp. If you look at the execution, I think you can clearly see how it's going to become 30 and 15 second ads in the coming months, but it sort of runs through all those scenarios quite quickly and perhaps it just gets a bit mushed together and it is a bit of a blur at the end. Isn't that the problem though, or the issue? Yeah, it's not as sharp, it's not as creative, but it'll probably sell more of the thing the brand team is being paid to sell. You know, I, and I, I mean, I, I guess where I, I feel a bit like, you know, kicking a puppy when it's down to mangle my metaphors with the the CHA proximity NRMA work is, is you know, I've said before now, the one bit that I felt that CHA proximity misses is 
the really defining great piece of creative, you know, when they've been such a good, effective agency, you know, sort of solving client problems, thinking about, you know, sort of the technology and data end of things. And here they are with probably the biggest piece of creative work they've ever done. And I don't like it. Um, or rather, it's not even that I don't like it. Hey, I, 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 I love it as a piece of work. It's beautifully produced. Um, people, I think it must revolve a Willow Rook. Um, you know, seem to have done a great job with it. Um, but it's just my question marks over the, the, the effectiveness. So I, is it one where everyone involved and I, it's again, it's a lazy accusation. So I feel bad for saying it, but I did find myself wondering, have got slightly distracted by the smell of awards and trophies uh, rather than the uh, grubby need to sell more insurance? Personally, I, I can see where you're coming from in that respect because, you know, once you bring in the ads that will speak more directly about, you know, the first Saturday and this is what you're going to do this month and this is how it's going to help protect your home, if you bring that into like the insights they've got behind it, that big campaign film to start off with, you can kind of already envisage the case study video. That being said, I think the idea of this campaign, as opposed to Amy selling more insurance, is positioning NRMA as like the good guy brand. You know, we're out to help you, regardless of whether you're our customer or not. But in the end, I don't actually see how this campaign works unless you are already a customer of NRMA because are you going to pay attention to this campaign if you're with Amy, you're happy with Amy because they do all of this stuff for you, are you going to pay any attention to this? I guess the argument would be at the moment when you're considering your insurance, I suppose one of those doubts or objections you might have as a consumer is is everything covered and if that helps answer that question yes it is then doesn't that make it easier to go with amy yeah i think it does because also if nrma is saying to you hey this is how you can make your life safer aren't they kind of stepping away from the responsibility of what they're supposed to be doing next Google piles in. Google well and truly joined battle with the ACCC over the media bargaining code this week. Hannah, what's the latest? Yes, it has been a deliciously spicy week in Google News. Um, So what we saw happen was first up, Google released this kind of open letter to Australian consumers, which basically said, the government is coming for your free Google and your free YouTube, and they want to make it real bad. Um, It's particularly interesting, I think. Were those the very words they used, Hannah, or are you (laughs) interpreting them? I'm interpreting because, but I will say the very words they used were still pretty spicy. Um, It'll force us to provide you with a dramatically worse Google search and YouTube. It could lead to your data being handed over to big news businesses 
and would put the free services you use at risk in Australia. Not that far off with my interpretation there, I don't think. Um, but what what is particularly interesting is that this is, and I'm sure people who listen to the podcast would have seen it, if you go onto Google's search homepage right now, it's being kind of linked down the bottom there and it's got this little angry yellow triangle that says your Google search is at risk and likewise on YouTube. So what we saw was it blow up really quickly across Twitter, especially because they also put up an open letter to YouTube users saying, if you make money off YouTube, that's going to get a lot harder from now on because we're being forced to give the news media all of this data that you're not going to have access to. I went on Twitter shortly after this had broken and there were a number of YouTube creators with some pretty big followings being like, oh my God, the government's trying to shut down YouTube. What are we going to do? We need to get back at these publishers. And so it went from what I think has become a bit of an in-house media debate to becoming a worldwide debate, but nobody had that much information about it. Um, This is all in regards to the news media bargaining code that the ACCC wants to bring in, which would see the publishers able to kind of take on Google and Facebook and ask them for money for their news content. So Google slammed down this very dramatic letter. The ACCC came straight back and said it was misinformation and that they were never going to force uh, Google to hand over data um, and that, you know, it wouldn't actually stop anybody else being able to make any money on YouTube. Um, And then all the news media platforms came out as well and said that it was very unfair for Google to use that kind of terminology and to make this such a public debate when it's just an issue of, you know, money for news content. So I definitely don't think we've seen the end of it. I think Google's already threatened that they've got more moves to come in the next couple of weeks. So I think before we see the bargaining code actually rolled out across the industry, there's going to be a lot more of this to come. Next, Hannah talks television with the boss of industry lobbying group Free TV Australia. I am here with Bridget Fair from Free TV. Bridget, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for asking me. So we kind of set this up off the back of a report that Free TV released, um, which showed some really interesting findings, I think, especially into commercial TV during, you know, what's obviously a very difficult time for the industry, but also for Australians in general. Do you want to kind of give me a quick cover of um, what was included in the report? Um, sure. So, look, I mean, I think it might be helpful to sort of say why did we do the report in the first place? Um, and that's because, of course, we know every morning we do get a bit of a, an industry report card every day. We get our ratings and we know that people love commercial television and we know that 17 million Australians tune into something on commercial TV every week. And so that's a really important measure of the impact that we make in people's lives each and every day. But we decided that we wanted to get a deeper understanding of the social, democratic and cultural contribution that our industry makes um, and how we contribute to the community. So that was the rationale for commissioning the report. We wanted something that was independent and authoritative and so the report was the result of that process. Um, And we did get some really fantastic results out of the report. Clearly, it showed that we make a very significant 
economic contribution as an industry. So we have an overall contribution of $2.3 billion, according to Deloitte, with whom we partnered for the report, and an additional economic benefit from advertising um, of $4.4 billion. It also showed that we spend $1.6 billion on Australian content, which we know from ACMA figures as well, and that we support 16,300 full-time equivalent jobs. We, at the same time, commissioned some audience research, uh, and that was very telling because it told us that 95% of Australians think that losing commercial television would have an impact on society, um, that 89% of Australians think it's a valuable service, and 76% of Australians think that commercial TV is more important than ever. So I think what we learned was that um, commercial television is valued for that universal access that we provide to people and the fact that we deliver the kind of entertainment that people share all at the same time and brings people together and also for trusted news. Yeah, and I think it was a particularly interesting time to kind of get those viewer responses as well. Obviously, you touched on that we get, you know, we do get the ratings all the time, so we are able to see how many people are tuning in. But especially this year when we started the year with the catastrophic bushfires, we then went what felt like almost straight into COVID-19. There's been some kind of really interesting data about how much consumers rely on free-to-air to kind of keep them updated and also not just nationally but locally as well across the board and I think what this report really kind of showed to me and what I wasn't particularly aware of was how widespread commercial free-to-air is in Australia compared to some other countries in the world. Yes absolutely I mean we've seen viewing spikes in uh, both the bushfire season and of course more recently in COVID-19 and what that's telling us is that when important things are happening in the community people are looking for a source of information that they can trust. So we see that through the ratings as you've pointed out but we also see that when we ask people what they think they tell us that commercial television is one of their most trusted sources of news and that's absolutely critical Um, and it also is something that everyone can get it doesn't matter where you live or how much you earn you're all going to be able to receive commercial television services because we are there um, available to over 98 percent of the population and Of course, you're not paying for that service in any shape or form other than once you've got your TV set, you can plug it into the wall and it works. So there's no data plans, there's no ongoing requirement, and it's very reliable. So let's break down a little bit more kind of some other things that have been impacting the industry this year. One of the things that there's been a lot of chat about, especially during COVID-19, which has obviously been quite hard for the industry, is those content quotas. And I think you touched on it there, you know, $1.6 billion spent on Australian content by the industry. What are your kind of key frustrations in the content quota space and what is it that you're hoping will be unveiled there in kind of the next couple of months and years? Well, look, the biggest frustration with the current content rules is the fact that they are so woefully out of date. We've been seeking change to the content quotas for well over a decade Um, We knew that they were unsustainable um, prior to 
COVID-19 hitting. And now that we're experiencing the additional impacts of COVID-19, it's absolutely essential that they change because what we're working with is a set of rules that were really largely designed in the 1980s. So it's a bit like going and getting an ice core from 30 years ago and, you know, seeing what was appropriate for that time. And we aren't in the same industry anymore. We don't, we've got many more sources of content. We've got many more platforms providing content and we've got a lot more competition. Um, but at the same time, as we're seeing from our report, we're seeing people valuing commercial television more than ever. And of course, we're the single largest source of funding for Australian content production. So what's critical to come out of this process is to make sure that we've got a set of rules that allow for a sustainable commercial television sector because otherwise um, the businesses that rely on commercial television in um, the Australian production sector won't have that same source of output um, as they do currently. So what we're looking to do is try and allow the rules to deliver sustainability and more flexibility so that we can provide the Australian content programs that we know viewers love and that enable us to continue to invest the huge amounts of money that we invest in Australian content right now. And do you think as part of that that the international players who are obviously interested in coming over here, particularly if we're looking at streaming platforms, should they have to play a part in that Australian content? Because it really does feel like at the moment free-to-air is doing a lot of the heavy, well, the majority of the heavy lifting. Uh, yeah, look, we have really focused on the rules for our own platform. We don't see our role as really deciding what the regulation should be for other players in the market. So what we've looked at is what are the rules that we're operating under? Um, are they sustainable? The answer is no. Are they really modern and fit for purpose? The answer is no. So what should the rules be for commercial television? To it? Because what we do know is that Australian content is more important than ever for our platform. We are showing increasing amounts of Australian content. So we have an overall 55% requirement that uh, we meet and, in fact, we exceed. So the average amount of Australian content on primary channels is 73%, um, which is well in excess of the 55% requirement. And about 85% of our overall content spend is spent on Australian. So we've got a deep commitment to Australian content. We know that our audiences want to watch Australian programs because 20 of the top 20 programs on Australian on television last year were Australian um, and so what we want to be able to do is continue that because we see that as a differentiating factor for commercial television versus some of these international streaming platforms. And some of the other things that we've seen this year the government has rolled out a variety of different kind of offsets or packages or initiatives to try and help the media industry kind of at large, but also the TV industry. Obviously, this has been a really tough year for TV considering there's been a lot of location problems, a lot of spending problems, all these sorts of things that are kind of come all coming together over the last couple of months. Some of those ideas from the government have been well received and some of them have not been. What's your general sense of the government's response during the kind of COVID-19 restrictions that have been placed upon the industry? 
Well, we were very uh, pleased with the package that the government announced in April this year to assist commercial television broadcasters. Um, and that package uh, included two key features. One of them was a suspension of the Australian content subquotas. So that's drama, documentaries and children's, because we were worried that with the impact on the production pipeline that we may not be in a position to meet our quotas and we didn't want to be placed in a position of regulatory uncertainty. Uh, so we were pleased about that and we were also very grateful that the government uh, suspended our uh, spectrum fees for a 12-month period, although of course we would have preferred that they made that decision for a longer period of time because none of us really know how long the impact of this COVID situation is going to continue to go on. Um, and so we, we, we absolutely welcomed those announcements from the government and they've been very necessary because what we saw was two key impacts on our sector at the time of COVID. The first was the impact on the production pipeline, so many productions needing to be suspended or cancelled because of the impact of the virus. Uh, and secondly, um, we saw a revenue impact, so significant revenue drops for all commercial television broadcasters because of the impact on overall Australian businesses. And I think the uh, figures uh, last week were out that the impact was about 22% down across the six-month period year on year for the first half of this calendar year. So combined, those things meant that broadcasters really had to think about whether they could continue to meet the same amount of Australian content obligations they previously had and also to make sure that they weren't going to be in regulatory jeopardy. What I can say is that we've seen commercial broadcasters showing huge amounts of Australian content and meeting almost all their announced programming slate um, to the extent that they've been able, as well as producing massive amounts of additional news and current affairs content to keep people informed. And if there was anything more that you would hope the government would roll out, even if it's just, you know, kind of extending some of these opportunities, because I think you touched on it in there and it's quite important to flag that we have absolutely no idea when the COVID restrictions are going to ease or when COVID itself is going to ease. And, you know, there have been some quite sobering reports that it may not happen for a couple of years at least. Is, does there need to be more work done from the government point of view to make ensure we have a strong free-to-air industry on the other side of this? Well, the most important thing that we need is an outcome from the content review and that's been ongoing for a little while and people have put in their submissions and we need, a, we need to know what are the rules going ahead um, that we need to meet. So our quotas have been suspended for a 12-month period um, and the government has said that they will look at that again later in 2021. But what we really want is some settings that are maybe going to take us through further than that. The industry has put forward some thoughts about what should happen to the overall content framework. And, of course, what would be really well received is some additional input for the production incentives, which both uh, broadcasters and producers have argued for, so to make sure that we incentivise Australian production. Because we know that we can do well in the production space. We know that there's increasingly global markets for Australian content and what we need to be able to do is to be internationally competitive with the level of subsidies that we're putting into our production sector. 
so we'd really hope we're hoping to see the government come forward with a comprehensive package which addresses both the outdated quota obligations and also looks at whether we need to be uh, turbocharging some of those incentives to ensure that we've got the right levels of production. The other thing that we've seen is the industry come together to put together some very COVID-safe production rules, and we've seen some international productions want to move to Australia in this um, post or in this sort of, it's not post-COVID really, but it's in the post-initial COVID shock, um, people looking for places that are safe to produce. Um, and so the other problem for broadcasters and producers at the moment is freedom of movement between states. And whilst everybody understands the need for there to be very stringent requirements and controls to ensure we don't inadvertently spread COVID um, through production activity, what we do need is maybe some greater certainty around what the rules are and how people can comply with them so that we can continue to make the programs that people want to watch here in Australia and also continue to be welcoming in international productions to Australia, which of course contributes to the overall activity in the sector. It felt like at the beginning of say around March or April, we kind of had the initial COVID shock where people were, you know, networks were forced to kind of stand down some employees. There were quite a lot of cuts across the industry. And it felt like we were almost coming out the other side of that, you know, shows had gone back into production and we were starting to see, say, The Bachelor came back on air after having to be delayed. And, you know, we were kind of starting to feel a little bit more of a return to normalcy. Then last week, we unfortunately had some big cuts at 10 again, obviously some on-air talent that was impacted as well as a lot of journalists. Do you think that we're going to see more of that? Do you think that those kind of cuts are going to be necessary perhaps going forward for us to keep the industry going? Or do you think, are you kind of hopeful that we've gotten through the worst of it? Uh, well, look, I wish I had a crystal ball. It's yeah. difficult to know exactly what the industry is going to look like this time next year, let alone this time in three years. Um, so I do think that we will see all businesses carefully looking at what the market um, is um, doing and their capacity to continue to, you know, do certain activities. And we've seen that the commercial broadcasting sector has been under quite a lot of pressure not just um, because of COVID but pre-COVID because of the changes that we're seeing in viewing behaviour and greater competition. So all of these trends have really just been exacerbated by COVID rather than necessarily caused by COVID. But of course, COVID has had a very significant impact. So I think we are going to see uh, broadcasters continue to carefully look at how they can continue to manage their businesses. At the same time, we are seeing some signs of recovery. We're seeing the advertising market back a little bit. And, of course, we know that we're a very strong platform for advertisers and we know that Australians still heavily rely on their free-to-air services. So I think there's every um, sign that we'll continue to see a strong future for commercial television, Uh, but it is going to require ongoing tweaking Um, according to the market conditions. And one of the other really big debates that's been raging this year has been about regional areas and their access to media. Obviously, 
regional papers have been hit quite hard because of COVID-19. But newspapers aren't the only things that regional areas rely on. They also obviously rely on radio, but also TV, as we kind of touched on earlier in the chat. How important do you think it is that Free-to-Air continues to provide that, I don't know, I guess that connection for regional viewers? And do you think that that's something the industry should be focused on, its role in kind of bringing news to regional areas and focusing on exploring those stories? Absolutely. I mean, we're very proud of our our regional television contribution to local news and local communities. If you want to talk about local TV news, you're really only talking about commercial television. We provide up to 66 nightly news bulletins across 40 markets and showcasing local Australian stories. So that's super important. The other thing that's important is that um, regional broadcasters are, of course, an important advertising platform for local businesses. So they play a massive role in local communities and keeping those communities alive and vibrant and local businesses able to operate. So we have seen um, more than ever in 2020 the importance of local regional news for Australians. Um, And we do need to see some focus on the future sustainability of regional broadcasters in particular. As you mentioned, we've seen some regional newspapers uh, go to the wall or cease printing uh, hard copies or whatever. Regional broadcasters have continued to operate throughout this entire period and continue to provide the huge amounts of local news and information that their viewers rely on. So that's why it's absolutely critical that we get the policy settings right to ensure that our regional broadcasters can continue to operate. Um, And critical to that is ensuring that we have a good hard look at the ongoing level of spectrum fees uh, because it's a very high fixed cost business, particularly in regional areas. And I think we need to look at whether the kind of spectrum fees that we're charging for commercial television are sustainable and whether they're correct in terms of looking at international precedents. We're paying very high amounts for that spectrum compared to the amounts that are being charged for the use of similar spectrum in other territories. Um, And of course, we've been uh, we've seen the government accepting a role for some direct funding of regional news through the recent public interest news gathering program and we think that there's absolutely a role for that to be expanded um, in recognition of the increasing pressure on local services but the very high ongoing audience demand for those services. And just lastly I wanted to get some thoughts from you on more recently we've finally seen the outcome of the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry. Um, They've recommended a mandatory uh, code which would see media owners and publishers able to bargain with the big tech platforms that specifically mentions Google and Facebook um, on content. And what they're hoping for that, I suppose, is that it will even the playing field a little bit, especially in the last couple of years, we've seen these big tech platforms appearing very strongly in Australia as a big presence while media seems to be suffering quite significantly. What were your thoughts on the mandatory code as it sits at the moment and are you hoping that there'll be some kind of specific nuance changes as we kind of see it rolled out because I know we're still in a process where they're 
seeking guidance on it before it kind of comes into fruition hopefully in the next year sure well we were uh we did welcome the announcement of the mandatory code and as you know it's been the culmination of a you know well over two-year process with the ACCC looking at all these issues um and what they've recognised is that our news content has significant value to the platforms and that a fair price should be paid for it. Um, and they were very, the ACCC was very clear in their findings. They found that the platforms have significant market power and that they're unavoidable trading partners for news media businesses. And I think we're seeing some of the very reasons why the ACCC came to those conclusions playing out with Google's release of its uh, open letter um, by way of its um, search page Um, and I think they're demonstrating through that action um, exactly the reasons why we need this mandatory code. I mean, the letter seems to me to be quite misleading and deliberately designed to frighten Australians about the impact of the code Um, and it's really the behaviour of a monopoly company that is not happy about any move to slightly redress the bargaining power between two parties, both of whom are seeking to discuss the value of a particular input into the digital platforms business. Yeah, I think one of the things that struck me about that letter um, from Google's Mel Silver was that I think a lot of the debate, and we quite often get criticised of this, that we're, you know, sitting in the media bubble and that a lot of what we chat about is only relevant to people in the media industry, whether we think it has wider value or not. But what I thought was quite interesting was that that letter from Google very clearly targets the consumer. It's, as you said, right there on the Google search page. And it was very, the language used in it was very um, bold language. And I think it said it would hurt the way Australian consumers use their platform and use YouTube. And then there was another letter to YouTube providers saying that um, their business model was basically at threat if news media was able to kind of level the playing field a little bit more. Did it, were you expecting them to come out with such a strong response to that? And were you kind of shocked at all by it? Or were you, you know, as you said, I guess they're a company that has quite a big monopoly on that, in that space. So maybe this is just the kind of move that they're, able to make? Well, I am I was a little surprised um, because I think it's actually quite a misguided strategy to try and frighten people um, into believing that there's something wrong with parties having a, a balanced negotiation over the value of a particular piece of content. Um, You know, for most of us, Google is actually the sole gateway to the internet. It's actually a almost monopoly position that they enjoy. And I think what we're seeing with this letter is Google displaying some very classic monopolistic behaviour. I mean, we've seen campaigns like this before from big businesses. We saw a very similar campaign run by Telstra um, around 2007 over whether people should be able to access their broadband network. And, of course, had Telstra been successful in that campaign, we'd only have one way of getting broadband and that would be through Telstra. And, of course, what Google wants to achieve is there should be only one way of 
getting to the internet and that should be Google and that they should set the prices for the inputs that are on the internet. And what we want to do is to make sure that we have strong news media businesses that can't be crushed by monopoly providers like Google and that we can have real negotiations about the relative values of each of our positions. And what the ACCC's pointed out is that we're not having those equal bargaining positions um, and that's not to say that Google isn't a valuable tool or doesn't provide a great service. It does all of those things. But what it isn't doing is negotiating fairly with news media businesses about the value of the content that is part of their, their um, service offering to their consumers. And all news media businesses are trying to do is to have a fair negotiation. The code doesn't actually mandate any particular outcome. Definitely. And I'm sure it won't be the last we'll hear from Google and I'm sure it won't be the last we'll hear from the media companies either. Um, Bridget Fair, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Our Automotive Marketing Summit is back in the virtual headlights on October 1st. This event will feature some of the most notable marketers in the industry discussing how they are dealing with the significantly shifting environment. First names on the starting grid include Volkswagen, GPC, Destination, and there's many more on the way. So if you're a marketer in the automotive industry looking to get the inside track for the industry's best and brightest, go to mumbrella.com.au slash automotive for more information. Tickets start from just $55. And that's it for this week. But before we go, it's worth mentioning that since we recorded the last Mumbrella cast, we said goodbye to our colleague and my regular co-host, Vivian Kelly. Viv leaves us with all of our thanks and very best wishes. That is it for this week's Mumbrella cast, though. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Toodle pip. 